If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SBA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Earlier this month, news broke of the discovery of a 17th century shipwreck of a warship off the coast of Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. The find was first made in 2007, but is only now being made public. And it promises to offer a host of new clues about the nation's seafaring power in the period. And intriguingly, the sinking also had the potential to change history. Matt Elton caught up with the maritime historian Claire Jowett to find out more. So Claire, for people who might have missed the news, can you briefly tell us what the discovery is that we're going to be discussing on today's episode? Absolutely. Uh, The Gloucester warship, a third-rate vessel, commissioned in 1652, built at Limehouse in London and launched in 1654, uh, has uh, been discovered. Uh, uh, For nearly 30 years, this ship enjoyed a varied maritime career, participating in amphibious campaigns across what was a really very bellicose period of national and international history. And in 1682, for no clear reason, apart from its readiness to sail, it was chosen 
to carry James Stuart, the Catholic Duke of York, later James II of England, James VII of Scotland, uh, to collect his family and return to court in London. And en route, disaster strikes uh, and the Gloucester hits the Lehman and Ower sandbanks off Norfolk and sinks within an hour uh, with much loss of life. James survived the ordeal. It's an incredible story, and we'll get into some of the specifics and what it tells us about the period in a minute. But I just wanted to, first of all, unpick um, a little bit the chronology of the discovery, if you like. Um, because although this has just been announced earlier in June, I think I'm right in saying that actually it was discovered quite a few years ago. Can you talk us through um, when it was found and what explains the gap, I suppose, between between its discovery and now? So, yes, absolutely. Uh, Julian and Lincoln Barnwell, after a four-year search beginning in 2003, which covered 5,000 nautical miles, uh, found uh, a 17th century ship underwater. They tell a moving story of when they found it, Lincoln seeing cannon and artefacts strewn across the seabed. They thought it... uh, might be the Gloucester, but also it might have been another 17th century warship, the Kent. And it's not until several years later, uh, in 2012, uh, that the ship's bell, with its 1681 date, conclusively proved it to be the Gloucester wreck. The Kent had uh, sunk in 1672, so it, it couldn't be the Kent. And due to the need to protect Uh, the security of an at-risk site while finalising appropriate governance, it's only now that its discovery can be made public. The REC has been declared to the receiver of REC, to Historic England and to the MOD, and Lord General Richard Dannett is leading as Chairman of Trustees a new charity being formed to provide support, fundraising and governance for the Gloucester's future. A landmark exhibition, The Last Voyage of the Gloucester, Norfolk's Royal Shipwreck, is going to be held at Norwich Castle Museum next year from uh, February to July 2023. And that's co-curated with Norfolk Museum colleagues um, and UEA staff. I'm privileged to be one of the co-curators. It's all really exciting stuff. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your involvement. When did you first get involved in the project? And what was your first reaction to the news? Uh, It was in July 2019. So we've had to keep it secret for for a long time. And it's Steve Miller, uh, the uh, lead of Norfolk Museum Services, had approached the UEA Vice-Chancellor, David Richardson, and the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Arts and Humanities, Sarah Barrow, to tell them uh, about what Lincoln and Julian had had discovered. Steve had known for for a while. Um, And Sarah, uh, very thankfully uh, for me, knew of my expertise and uh, my enthusiasm for maritime history and culture. And uh, having been sworn to secrecy, a visit was arranged to see some of the finds and to meet the Barnwells. And it's just mind-blowing when you uh, witness the range of artefacts that have been rescued and the intimacy of some of the objects that they've brought up. 
How does that work? Do you just get a phone call one day and someone says, we've got some news that you might be interested in, but you're not allowed to tell anyone? How, how does that process work? I think I think it was over coffee or wine. I think it was a bit more civilised than than that. But uh, the Vice-Chancellor and Sarah had had spoken to Julian and Lincoln and seen these artefacts. And then I was the next in... in UEA just absolutely knew that it wanted to be go on this journey with Julian and Lincoln and be part of this this story, a really important story for Norfolk. Uh, and we take our commitment to uh, as a civic university, as a regional university, really, really strongly. So it was just a fantastic opportunity. And the brothers, Julian and Lincoln, were they looking for, when they started searching, were they just looking for shipwrecks or were they looking for specific shipwrecks? I think they've been diving since they were boys. Um, and obviously I'm telling their story here. They're, they're a better place to tell it for themselves, of course. But I think inspired by their father, they since little lads, they'd been uh, diving off the North Norfolk coast. Uh, I think they'd looked at a number of more modern wrecks, Second World War in particular, uh, I think Lincoln had a, a book of shipwrecks um, that he found, you know, f- fascinating to read. And they they really wanted to go after a, an early modern, a 17th century shipwreck, I suspect in a kind of a boy's own way, cannons from what they tell me were, were something that, that they were looking for. And that's how I think they decided to, to embark on this, as I say, four-year search for the Gloucester. Uh, the Gloucester was such a significant journey, the, 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 the way it sank, that I think that's what attracted them to this particular ship. Let's delve a bit into um, what happened to the Gloucester when it sank. What caused it to sink and how many casualties were there? The Gloucester was on its way to Scotland. It was carrying about 400 people, including James, Duke of York, heir to the throne of his brother, Charles II. Charles, by 1682, is increasingly ill and ageing. So uh, many powerful nobles, uh, English and Scottish, are on board and they're gravitating towards James. So with the crew, uh, about 270, 280, and the servants for the nobility, that's why the ship was so overcrowded uh, on that day. Um, James is in a really good mood. This is uh, as the waning of the exclusion crisis uh, is occurring. So he's been sent out of England for the last couple of years. He's been living in Scotland. Um, but by the spring of 1682, that exclusion of uh, by the Whigs, the attempt to exclude a Catholic heir to the throne has started to really very seriously subside. It's not quite over, but it's but it's really subsided. So he's in a really good mood, going to be allowed to live back in London um, with all his friends. There's lots of wine on board, but there's an argument between the key individuals on board the Gloucester over the best route to take to get to Scotland. The pilot, James Ayres, specifically employed to navigate the ship through those difficult passages, advocates for what's called the Collier's Route, to hug the coast uh, uh, as the safest and, and best way. But it will take a little bit longer. The experienced naval officers suggest the deep sea route, avoiding the sandbanks. James, clearly keen to get 
to Scotland wants to go the most direct through direct route. He suggests uh, avoiding the sandbanks, uh, but taking the middle path. And very sadly, the next morning after this protracted ar- argument, uh, the ship hits the lemon and hour sandbanks. Um, it bumps along the bottom. Uh, its rudder comes off. It slips into deeper water, but it's sunk within an hour, probably closer to 45 minutes. So it's it's really quick between the, the hitting and and the loss of the vessel. James, hoping the ship could be saved, delays abandoning it. And of course, royal protocol at the time was that nobody else could leave the ship before the most significant individual on board uh, 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 had gone. More lives uh, were probably lost than was necessary that morning. We don't know how many exactly. We'll probably never know. We don't know how it exactly how many people were on board the ship. We're trying to find the names of the survivors. They're trying to find the names of of the dead. But estimates would suggest probably between 130 and 250 people lost their lives that that morning. There's no muster list. So as I say, we'll probably never know. So I think there was avoidable death if James had abandoned earlier then that that might have saved lives. But there would have been even more death if there hadn't have been the vessels, the other vessels and the yachts that were accompanying the Gloucester. The yachts uh, and others send out their lifeboats. There's lots of people in the water. They're fishing them out. It's, 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 it's light that morning. The seas are rough, but not ridiculously so. So a, a lot of people half dead, as Peeps put it, are dragged out of the water. But a really very serious tragedy. It's a really, it sounds like a really significant disaster. Does the fact that it all happened so quickly, as you say, in about 45 minutes to an hour, did that affect what evidence is now available to us? I think inevitably so, because um, there were a lot of witnesses to what, what happened. But I think it really does affect the fact that no nobody left with anything. They had to scramble, so they didn't get time to get their possessions. There's a story that that one of the avoidable delays was that James was really determined to take off his strong box, and that contained papers, important papers. He was going to Scotland both to collect his family, but also to finish diplomatic business there. So clearly there were important documents in that strong box. But but that also took time to load up onto the lifeboat. Um, so by the time that James had finally abandoned ship, there's only time to um, put out one more lifeboat and that is quickly overrun. So a lot of people end up end up in the water. Um, and it does mean that that nobody leaves with anything, that it's it's first thing in the morning. People were mostly asleep. I think that also means that they weren't ready. It wasn't as though everybody was on board deck, ready to 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 abandon, to evacuate in an orderly fashion. I can only imagine the panic that is happening. Um, so I think there are an, a, a number of reasons why such a large number of people died, but it also could have been much worse if the Gloucester had been on its own and those other ships weren't able to put out their their, their lifeboats. 
Mm. I'm really struck by the fact you've alluded a couple times to specifics, like the fact that um, the ship, there's an argument about which route the ship should take. How, how, how do we know about those details? Uh, because Captain Berry, Captain John Berry, uh, describes the argument in his log. There are other accounts that, that, that provide that information that there had been a, a key debate over the, the best way to go. Um, as I say, numerous eyewitnesses, numerous people involved in this argument, they all tell their stories. They all recount what's happened, or, or to a, a degree, at least. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think making 17th century maritime history available for people of an island nation as we are in the ways that the Mary Rose has done for the 16th century would be awesome. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio. And the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Staying on the theme of, of evidence, we should talk about the artefacts. You've alluded a few times to the, the, the wealth of artefacts that are available to, to explore. What kind of objects are we talking about? Well, this is truly extraordinary. The list is, and this is just rescued artefacts. Um, wine, I'm going to start with the wine. It's such a glamour item, isn't it? But Julian and Lincoln have rescued, um, I think, and again, I may get this slight, about 149, 150 wine bottles, um, some with their contents intact, uh, which is just extraordinarily amazing to think that the 17th century wine and also not only is the wine there but there is what's called ullage which is the little bit of air between the wine and the cork so we've got wine and 17th century air how how brilliant is that um so lots of wine uh, lots of sort of porringers some bits of glasses some of the wine bottles as well i should say have got um seals on them so little glass seals a, a really fashionable technology at the time for the for the about town gentleman was to have you know his own little glass seal with his initials part of his crest whatever 
so individualized and and peeps for instance talks about being so proud in the in the 1660s that he's now of a uh, a class or or moneyed enough to be able to afford his own uh, bottles with seals on so lots and lots of wine lots and lots of lots of bellamine jugs uh lots of uh, instruments uh, navigational instruments as you would expect on on a voyage um cutlery um spectacles um with spare with spare lenses of all things it's it's amazing uh, apothecary and medicinal um uh, instruments and tools fascinating a urine specimen jar um there's a there's a royal physician on board sir charles scarborough uh, accompanying of course the heir to the throne but also perhaps for, for for Mary of Medina the pregnant wife of James if if the birth comes early but uh, one again can only tantalizingly imagine was this used to to examine the royal specimen you know uh, while on you just don't know it, it, it's amazing shoes bits of shoes pipes clothes there's a what's called a gorget which is a a little shawl that a widow would have worn there is a silk hood it's it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful so many things and this is just the tip of the iceberg because this is rescue archaeology a number of items come from a couple of trunks where their lids were were, were washing away so the items have had to be extracted and rescued and, and that's where some of the clothes were bundled up and those trunks who who knows who they belonged to whether they were composite trunks of a of a, a royal servant or a number of royal servants you you just don't know but it, it's, it's the start of the research, really, on on this, and it's extraordinary. And how how well preserved are these objects? Well preserved for the most part. You know, obviously some are better. There's a lots of fragments as well. There's there's assemblages of things as as they've broken apart. But but and sometimes corroded. There's a porringer, um, and it's got sort of a little ear on it and it would be fascinating to know for instance whether this was used to to drink from or perhaps it was an apothecary's kind of uh, bloodletting uh but it's it's quite corroded it's got a little on its little ear it looks like it might have a a crest on it but you can't it's indistinct now and you can't see the the sort of lines drawn uh within it if that was being used for bloodletting to sort of measure the ounces of blood that were, were coming out. If it is for bloodletting, Scarborough is, you know, well known for his bloodletting. So you could imagine that a physician would have that, but equally perhaps it's for drinking. So they are well preserved, but they have been underwater for, you know, 340 years. There is a, a book that um, the, the binding of a book, it's got a Royal seal, uh, stamped on it but the paper was I, I believe you know completely destroyed so you you can't tell what book it was whether it was a bible a, 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 a you know who who knows who knows as a specialist in this kind of area of history this must be so exciting the potential that this discovery holds must be hugely exciting oh it's unbelievably so uh, the, the what's already been recovered is extraordinary enough but what's still to be down there is mind-blowing. The, what Julian and Lincoln think uh, is that the stern castle of the ship is, uh, is blanketed 
under probably about three metres of sand. Who knows whether it's been squashed or whether it's intact. But if it is intact or at least partly intact, how fascinating, how brilliant to be able to, 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 to extract and excavate that material because this is where the the captain's cabin would have been, the royal apartments would have been, the principal nobility. We've got John Churchill on board, the future Duke of Marlborough. We've got George Legg, Master of Ordnance. We've got the flower of Scottish nobility here. And they. it would be amazing to see what a luxurious royal journey at sea looked like. Never, We've never known and never had the opportunity to know about it before. I mean, I'm also interested in this as a one of those sort of what-if moments, and we have touched on this a little bit before now, but how how close do you think this incident came to changing the course of, of history? I think incredibly close. James delayed, James didn't want to, to leave. He'd been criticised in the, in the 1670s for leaving ships under pressure in battle too quickly. In 1682, he's, he doesn't want to make the same mistakes again. And it's quite, you know, obviously, it's quite close to the point at which the ship is, is about to sink that he leaves. If he had drowned that morning, it would have changed British history forever. The wreck of the Gloucester it's, it's one of those most almost moments of history, of British history. If James had drowned, then it's very likely that Charles II's illegitimate son, James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, would have become king when Charles died in 1685. It's the Monmouth Rebellion of 1685 when Protestants rebel against their uh, new Roman Catholic King James II uh, and Seventh which result in Monmouth being beheaded. And that just wouldn't have happened. And then, of course, the so-called Glorious Revolution, the largely bloodless invasion and coup by James, this Protestant, James II's Protestant nephew and daughter, William and Mary, would also not have occurred. And if that hadn't have happened, their co-regency at the behest of Parliament, which changed the monarchy forever wouldn't have happened. There'd have been no English Bill of Rights limiting the power of monarchs and setting out the rights of Parliament. So it's pretty a pretty significant almost moment. What do you think this discovery can tell us about England's navy in the 17th century and I suppose the changes it was experiencing during the period? I think it points to a power struggle in the navy uh, at the time. Um, after the wreck occurred, who was to blame was a really big issue. First of all, the pilot James Ayres is court-martialed. And then secondly, one of the captains of the uh, yachts, Christopher Gunman, who had been sailing ahead out of formation, is also court-martialed. And I think what's going on here is that there is a power struggle between um England in within England's navy James a former lord high admiral had um and coming back into power in 82 uh, is likely to want to impose his own will on the navy and the admiralty are going to want to resist his imposition of that 
power. They want to promote professional types within the within the navy because they think that professional sea captains, uh, professional pilots, rather than um, gentlemen pilots, are much more likely to not have accidents. Um, so I think you have James who'd appointed heirs. Um, James, who had, when he gets to Scotland, got rid of Captain Wyburn from uh, captaining the Happy Return, the ship that brings him back, and appointing his own friend, Gunman, uh, to to do that, really arbitrarily trying to seize control of of decision-making within the Navy. And I think that's a real flashpoint for the um, Admiralty Board and in part of those trials and courts martials that go on afterwards, the Admiralty Board are trying to to, to seize the initiative once more. Um, and I think the direction, the future direction of the Navy is in flux at this point. Um, we're moving towards uh, James wanting, as I say, to, to really take control once more and 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 that power struggle i think is is important for james his identity as a maritime hero as a lord high admiral was really important um and he's determined that if he's back in london he is going to be he wants to be lord high admiral again he doesn't succeed until 1685 but de facto he is really trying to control the navy so there's a there's a lot at stake i think in this voyage, um, and a lot about James's reputation that he needs to protect. It's fascinating. I mean, similarly, I suppose, does the discovery, you think, have anything to tell us about the nation's place in the world at the time? Yes, I think it absolutely does. This is a, a period of naval expansion. Um, Britain wants to be a world player. It wants to look out globally. And in order to achieve that, it needs a really effective and large, it believes, navy. Um, It's a really bellicose, I think I used this word before, and turbulent period um, in international relations. The Gloucester has a distinguished history of service. It's been involved in the anglo Spanish Wars, part of the Western design. It's been to Jamaica. It's involved in the Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars in the Battle of Lowestoft, the Battle of Sol Bay. But by 1680, it's just uh, going through, and by 1682, completed a, a, a major uh, re, re, repair and refit. We know that's how we know the the date of the Bell of, of 1681. Um, but this is slow. The uh, Navy has the appetite to be expanding, but it perhaps doesn't have adequate finance. It doesn't have adequate materials, enough wood, enough nails to keep the Navy in the tip-top state that it's needed to be. And we must remember, of course, that it's by accident that the Gloucester takes James on this voyage. It had been awaiting going to Ireland and then to Tangier under Captain Berry when new orders arrived. Looking to the future then, what happens next? Um, do you th- think it's possible that this this shipwreck can be raised like the Mary Rose? Well, that would just be fantastic. But I think what happens next, there's a number of options it might be possible in due course and with appropriate permissions to raise part of the ship. I think I've mentioned the Stern Castle 
um, hopefully, we hope, you know, safely blanketed under sand. That wouldn't that just be amazing? Um, trunks, the two trunks that have been uh, brought up, uh, or the contents of trunks in, in rescue are more, more possessions of, of individuals on board. Um, but but these are you know that maybe this could be done through trenches. But these are archaeological considerations, and 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 I'm a, 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 a maritime his, historian. But certainly, as a maritime historian, I can think of nothing better um, to have as much as possible of this time capsule of royal luxurious travel um, brought to the surface and in a permanent museum. And I, I think making 17th century maritime history available for people of an island nation as we are in the ways that the Mary Rose has done for the 16th century would be awesome. This is kind of a horrible question to ask a historian because I know uh, historians don't necessarily like comparing discoveries in this way. I mean, how does this compare having said all that, to the Mary Rose, do you think this is on a par with, more exciting than? Does it have the potential to be as major? I think the Mary Rose is fantastic. I think the heritage assets that the Mary Rose has offered for the South Coast, for Britain, and has the work that has been done, for example, over the identity of the individuals that died that day, finding how multicultural they were, I cannot underline enough how I think important that work is. The Mary Rose is brilliant. If we could be half as good as the Mary Rose, then I think we're doing very well. I think it is unhelpful. To, it's a 17th century ship. It's, it's on a, a completely different journey. The, the politics around it are fascinating in themselves. But yeah, if we could, if we could do it as well as the Mary Rose has done, which I, I take my hat off, then I think we're, you know, but I want to tell the stories of the people that died, the people that survived. And I don't just want it to be a history of, great men. I think in the way that the Mary Rose has, has diversified maritime history in the 16th century, we don't just want to tell the story of, of James Stewart, important as that is. We want to tell other stories. I'm, I'm just going to give you one example, if I may. This is a sad story, but I think it's a, and it's a romantic story, but it's, it's also, it, it shows, I think, some of the diversity that we just might be able to, to achieve. The Earl of Roxburgh, Robert Carr, he's a, he's a young man. He's 23, he's 24. Um, he's apparently undressed in his cabin at 5.30 in the morning. Um, he's slow to get dressed. James calls for him. He's a very significant noble, calls for him to go in his boat. The message doesn't get through and uh, Roxburgh ends up in the water. Roxburgh can't swim but his servant, James Littledale, can swim. Roxburgh climbs on Littledale's back and they start to swim to one of the boats. And this is where it's terribly sad. Another individual, a poor soul in the water, catches hold of the two of them, pulls them down under the water. Roxburgh can't swim, he drowns there and then. Littledale makes it to a boat, clambers in, but dies within an hour. 
it's it's but it shows the the the, the love the respect between master and servants and and more even more Roxburgh's married he has a young widow margaret um he has children uh, margaret is devastated at the news of her husband's loss she sends out a search party so it's her that organizes from great yarmouth a, a search party to go out to the wreck and the um the ship is still bits of the ship the mast is still visible above the water to try and find her husband's body uh, they look for a, a number of days nothing is found but margaret stays un well, a widow for 71 years so we have the 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 love of a a master a servant to his master and a a wife to her husband just in that story uh, and it's not just about great men it's about how this tragedy touches the lives of 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 all people from all classes and not not just men women as well i would love to know we know about margaret i would love to know about littledale's family was there a wife there? Were the children there? This is the kind of research that we hope to do. And all this potential is now in front of us. Um, what are your plans for the project? I'm ve- very pleased to say that we have a, a Leverhulme Trust project grant and myself and a colleague, Dr Ben Redding, are producing a cradle-to-grave history of the Gloucester. Um, my first publication on it about the, the last voyage was published last Friday by English Historical Review. Dr Redding is just finishing an article on the Gloucester in the, the Western design. Um, so we are we are we started our our grant last October and it will run for three years. But we we want to tell this story properly. We want to explore all the lives that were that were touched um, and really try and do a different sort of maritime history with this project. And and the ship itself is the star, I think. That was Claire Jowett speaking to Matt Elton. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 